morning. If you would please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 6. As we continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke, we find ourselves in the middle of what's sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain, this extended discourse in which Jesus teaches his disciples what it means to be a disciple. What should a Christian's life look like? How should a Christian's life be different from the world? And we started by looking at the Beatitudes and the woes, uh, some perhaps countercultural ways in which uh, believers, disciples, are different from unbelievers. The last Sunday, you'll remember, we looked at the challenging text to love your enemies, to do good to and to bless and to pray for those who are opposed to you, and uh, how that unreciprocated kindness, uh, that's nothing like the world, but ultimately reflects God our Father, and be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Well, that brings us to our text for this morning, and uh, Lord willing, we're going to cover verses 37 to 42. Uh, Here we find a a section about judging, or perhaps not judging. And just like with the previous topic of loving our enemies, uh, the way in which we as disciples need to think about this topic and then live out these principles, well, because it's so different from how the world thinks, and because it's so different from how we by our nature think, it's going to be a challenging text for us to apply. But let's start by reading the text, and then we'll ask the Lord to help us, and then I'll try my best to explain what this text means and how we by grace can apply it in our lives. So Luke chapter 6, verses 37 to 42. This is uh, the word that God has for you this morning. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck. Take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our only mediator, our only savior, the only one who could reconcile us to a holy God. We thank you for your word, that you have graciously given it to us that we might know you and we might know your salvation. And so we ask that you would help us now as we turn our attention to your word, that you would allow us to not only understand it, but also to apply this passage, this challenging passage to our lives. Father, we confess that we have sinned in many ways before you and against you, and yet you have 
lavished mercy and forgiveness upon us. And so help us then reflect your character and how we then deal with others that believers and unbelievers might glorify your name as a result. Father, we ask all this in the name of your Son, our Lord. Amen. So if you're taking notes, I've got three points for you this morning that I think uh, summarize the three main ideas of this passage. Uh, They are point number one, don't judge wrongly. Point number two, don't follow blindly. And point number three, don't act hypocritically. Don't judge wrongly, don't follow blindly, don't act hypocritically. Uh, Technically, that is not alliteration. But all three points do begin with the letter D, so that kind of counts for something. Point number one, don't judge wrongly. We're looking at verses 37 and 38 here. Now verse 37, and more specifically, the first two words of verse 37, judge not. That's got to be one of the best known most often quoted, perhaps, Bible verses. Uh, Sometimes it's by an unbeliever who doesn't want Christians to say anything about how they're to live. Well, the Bible says, don't judge. Translation, I'm going to do what I want to do. Or sometimes it's even a believer in the church. You confront them on some sin and uh, perhaps with good intentions, right, to honor the scripture, They say, hey, the the Bible says don't judge. You really shouldn't be talking about other people's sin like that. And perhaps it's thus become such a popular verse because it can basically basically be taken out of its context and kind of used as this catch-all defense against anything that anyone says about anything. And so maybe it's helpful, before we talk about what it does mean, if we first clarify what the phrase judge not, uh, what that doesn't mean. Well, first, judge not does not mean that we shouldn't ever confront one another on sin, and that we should just tolerate anything and everything in the church. No, the Bible clearly commands Christians to admonish one another, and even lays out very specific instructions on how to judge sin in the church in Matthew chapter 18 through this process that we call church discipline. And look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, referring to church discipline, 1 Corinthians 5, 12. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And so judge not clearly does not preclude the right judgments that occur in the context of church discipline. Second, judge not. Well, it also doesn't mean that other entities to whom God has given the authority to judge, not just the church, but also consider the state, uh, that the state doesn't have the right to judge. No, Romans 13, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God, and so the state has been given the authority to judge by God. So judge not is... Uh, not some kind of prescription for uh, anarchy or lawlessness. Uh, Third, going now from entities like the church or the state to now the individual Christian, uh, judge not 
does not mean that we as Christians, as individual Christians, aren't supposed to form correct assessments about how other people are living or how other people are acting, that we're supposed to somehow throw off all discernment when it comes to other people. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus himself formed opinions about people and shared them. Right, for example, right, when he earlier in the same sermon pronounced woes on those who would pursue the things of the world, riches, fullness, laughter, being well spoken of at the expense of God, Jesus pronounces woe on such people. And in the next few verses, which we're going to get to in a little bit, he's going to tell his disciples not to follow blind leaders. Well, in order to obey that, they're going to have to properly assess and discern who is a blind teacher that therefore ought not to be followed. And then you go beyond this sermon, right, to just the rest of the Bible. You think about exhortations like, beware of false prophets, or bad company corrupts good morals, or there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, they must be silenced, right? That's from Titus chapter 1. Well, all of those verses, all of those instructions, like a prerequisite to following any of those instructions is that Christians form correct assessments about other people. So judge not is not talking about the church, it's not talking about the state, and it's not talking about individual believers forming right and correct assessments about other people. And so there is a judging that is prohibited, but there's also a judging that is not only allowed, but biblically commanded. Here's the thing. If you get this wrong, if we make errors when we judge, you know what kind of judge that makes us? An erring judge. Erring judge. Erring judge. Thank you so much. All right. Well, if that's what Jesus is not talking about, Aaron Judge? Anybody? No? All right, it's fine. If that's what Jesus is not talking about when he says judge not, well, what is he talking about? Well, what Jesus is talking about here, what Jesus is speaking against here, is a harsh, hypercritical, censorious spirit in his disciples' hearts. This is that spirit that just loves to find fault in others. That just loves to bring them down, to tear them down. And you're just waiting to pounce at the very first misstep of another. And when they mess up, well, you're actually pleased. Because you've been waiting for that moment, right? Gotcha. It's that spirit that proudly and self-righteously looks down on others. You think about the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. It's an uncharitable spirit that always thinks the worst of others. One that refuses to ever show the benefit of the doubt. One that is really quick to draw negative conclusions about people's unseen motives. It's an unforgiving spirit. Not characterized by the mercy that characterizes God, but one that refuses to be merciful even as your father is merciful. One that refuses to let go of past offenses and just holds on to grudges and nurtures these slights as long as possible. It's a spirit that seeks to condemn. 
And I'm getting that from the, the second phrase in verse 37, which I think is supposed to be paired with the first. And so look at verse 37. Condemn not should be paired with judge not as two things not to do. And then forgive should be paired with give as two things that the believers ought to do. And so at least part of what it means to judge wrongly is to condemn others. And so Jesus is speaking against this, this spirit in us that just presumes to know everything. I have all the information needed. I know exactly what's going on in your heart. I can rightly pronounce condemnation and judgment on you. Maybe not realizing that for us to do that is to essentially take the role of being the righteous judge away from God. I don't know if there's a kind of a long description of the kind of judgment that Jesus is prohibiting, but you, you see that it's not a one-dimensional issue. Right? Our hearts can take that judgmentalism and that, that critical spirit and just kind of uh, move it in so many different directions. Maybe an illustration would be helpful and Rather than giving you an embarrassing story from my own life, well, we don't have to look much further than where we've been in this gospel. Like, where have we seen this kind of harsh, critical, judging, condemning spirit in our narrative? Well, you remember when Jesus called Levi the tax collector, follow me. And he does, and then he throws his great feast, and he invites all his friends that they might meet Jesus. What does it say in Luke 5.30? The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Well, these Pharisees had already pronounced a judgment. They had already pronounced condemnation on these tax collectors and sinners as unredeemable never to be forgiven. And how dare you associate with them, Jesus? How dare you associate with people like that? Or how about this for a, a critical spirit that looks to tear others down? You remember when the Pharisees are, are just waiting in the synagogue for Jesus to do something, to say something that they could pounce on? Luke 6, 7, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. No mercy, no charity, no benefit of the doubt. They're just waiting for Jesus to do something that they didn't like so that they could criticize him. And so the Pharisees certainly typified this kind of spirit. And perhaps some of us would confess that we kind of have the same proclivities too. And so we need to ask, right, what is going on in our hearts? Well, as we, we're going to talk about this next week, uh, but all you've got to do to really assess your heart, right, to, to assess a tree is to examine the fruit that it produces. And so the next time that you see a brother or a sister or whoever it is doing something, well, what kind of response does it elicit from us? There's two very different responses at the extremes, right? One is a, is a humble and loving concern for what you just saw. You believe the best in them, and you give them the benefit of the doubt. 
But at the same time, you, you really do care for their soul. And so after examining your own heart first, you, you, you bring it to them in gentleness and in love and in humility. Well, praise God, faithful are the wounds of a friend. On the opposite end of the spectrum, or the other response, the Pharisees' response, and perhaps the response that sometimes we feel our hearts being drawn to, well, rooted in pride, rooted in self-righteousness, is that harsh and, and critical spirit. You always do that. You're such a terrible person. I knew you were going to do something like that. Are you even saved? The, the problem is your heart. Here's why you did what you did. Right? Here's the underlying motives. You might not verbalize all of those things, but you see what I'm saying. It's that, it's that sensorious spirit in us that's driving our heart and driving our actions. Well, Jesus prohibits uh, that latter in his disciples while encouraging the former, right? bringing things to people's attention in love and humility. Judge not. And look at the second half of verse 37. And so, so far we have covered two words, right? We're going to get there. Look at the second half. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. And again, consider those as a pair, right? Just like with judge and condemn, you think of give and forgive together. Well, then it should become clear that give isn't so much referring to like the giving of material possessions or financial giving as much as it is referring to a giving of mercy, a, a giving of charity, a giving of love, not being judgmental, being willing to forgive offenses. And of course, when we're talking about forgiving, we're not talking about just excusing sin or pretending like sin never happened and just never addressing it or anything like that. Rather, what we're referring to here is a, uh, an attitude, a, a, disp- a dispensation towards uh, forgiving, towards uh, charity, uh, one that is genuinely de- desirous to, to see repentance happen in that other person, uh, quick to grant forgiveness. And so you can see how that would closely tie to judge not. And really, if you think about it, all of this is just uh, the golden rule. Remember verse 31 from last week. As you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. This is really just the golden rule in practice. Like you would want others to be forgiving and giving towards you, uh, exercising charity and kindness and compassion towards you. And so you should treat others the same way. You would want others to judge you mercifully and charitably, and so you ought to judge others mercifully and charitably. So what's the result if we do these things? If we judge not and condemn not and give and forgive, well, Jesus tells us, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. And so as we treat others, well, so in a like manner, God will treat us. And not in this works-oriented way, like because I didn't judge, therefore I've somehow earned a pass in the judgment or anything like that. 
No, it's much more akin to blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Like by being merciful, by reflecting what God has already done in you, showing you mercy, well, you demonstrate yourself to be one who has already received much mercy in the gospel. And then Jesus uses this illustration from the marketplace, that of a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, being put into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And the picture there is, you know, you go to the marketplace, you're trying to buy some grain. Well, they would measure out the quantity of grain that you're buying in a basket. Now, you just pour grain straight into the basket. There's all kind of, you know, gaps and spaces that would naturally form between the grain. And so even if you paid for and bought a basket of grain, well, you're actually getting a lot less than a basket. This happens every time you buy potato chips. Right? Like you go to Costco, you get like that family-sized bag. You think it's going to last you for days. Well, what happens when you open it? The moment you open it, right, the bag is half empty, right? Because the chips settle, the, the crevices and the gaps get filled by other chips, and now all you've got is a half bag of chips. And so a fair and just seller, well, he wouldn't just pour the grain into the basket. He would shake it up, and then he would press it down so that all those gaps and those spaces that would get filled in, right, that's the good measure that Jesus refers to there. But then a really generous seller, well, he would go beyond that, right? So even after it's pressed down and even after it's shaken together, he would then heap extra grain on top of it so it's like running over. And then all of that is, is put into your lap, right? Referring to the, the fold of your outer garment, which would kind of create a pocket that you can carry things in. And so the picture there is just, is just of that pocket overflowing with grain because of the generosity of the seller, and so this is a picture of like overabundant, like overflowing, lavish generosity. And it's meant to illustrate what happens with mercy. And we show mercy abundantly to others. We will be shown mercy abundantly by God. And on the flip side, if we show no mercy, but we're harsh in our judgments, we're quick in our condemnation, well, listen to how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? When we're hypercritical, when we lack mercy, we're showing perhaps that we don't understand mercy at all ourselves. When we lack forgiveness, we're showing perhaps that we don't understand forgiveness ourselves. Now, just to be clear on this, because this might be a point of confusion, right? it's not that by showing mercy to others, by forgiving others, that we are somehow earning for ourselves mercy or forgiveness. Like God's got this scorecard in heaven, and he's keeping track of how much mercy you've shown in your lifetime, and that's going to determine how much mercy he's going to show you. No, not at all. 
But rather, the principle is that one of the clearest evidences that you yourself have been forgiven, that you yourself have been shown mercy, is that you now have that forgiving and merciful spirit yourself. Again, verse 36, you are merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. And so through likeness to your Father, you are demonstrating that he is indeed your Father. But if as you look at your life, you realize, uh, perhaps in these avenues of mercy and forgiveness, that, well, you look really nothing like him, well, to make you question if he really is your father. Brothers and sisters, this, right, let's be honest, right, this is hard. Our natural inclination, our, our sinful tendency, at least as I examine my own heart, is to be quick to judge others. It's to be rather uncharitable and condemning in our judgments. And yet the New Testament calls us to this entirely different mindset. This mindset of love. uh, This love that bears all things and hopes all things and endures all things. Here's the thing. This is one of those passages that I can almost guarantee you you're going to have the opportunity to apply immediately, like in this next week. And so when that opportunity comes... When you see something or you hear something about your coworker or about a brother or sister in the church or about a family member or whoever it is, will you be quick to rush to a harsh judgment of them? Will you ascribe to them evil motives? Will you write them off as being unredeemable? Or will you do to them as you wish that they would do to you? Right? Being charitable and merciful and inclined to forgive. Point number one, don't judge wrongly. Point number two, don't follow blindly. Now in verses 39 and 40, you look at 39, Jesus is asking uh, two rhetorical questions. Can a blind man lead a blind man? The implied answer there is no. A blind man cannot lead a blind man. You say, why not? Well, the second question kind of answers the first will they not both fall into a pit? The implied answer there is yes. Uh, They will both fall into a pit. By the way, if you ever notice this when you've read the Bible, there's a lot in the Bible about like falling into pits. And these pits aren't like little potholes that that you might trip in on the road, right? You should be picturing like these deep, dried out wells, right? So falling into a pit like that would be a a life-threatening situation. And so will they not both fall into a pit? Right? That is portraying extreme danger. The extreme danger of a blind man following a blind man. But Jesus isn't, he's not giving like a, a, a safety training course here. Right? So what is he talking about? Like who is this blind leader and who is this blind follower? We'll look at the next verse, verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So back then, before books, before the internet, before Wikipedia, right? nowadays pretty much anybody can learn anything. But back then, a disciple, a a student, would have to attach himself to a teacher and, and follow that teacher around and learn everything that that teacher knows. And so how he ends up at the end is 
very strongly dependent on the quality of the teacher. So if the teacher is a good teacher, well, that's good for the disciple because everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. But if that teacher is a bad teacher, that's bad news for the disciple because everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So Jesus' point here, I think, is pretty clear. Right? You ought to be careful, really careful, in choosing who to follow. Point number two, don't follow blindly. But what's maybe less clear is why Jesus is saying this here. Right? So the passage before this, point number one, was about not judging wrongly. And then the passage after this, we'll get to point number three, it's going to be about not acting hypocritically. So why, like right in the middle of those two admonitions, does Jesus tell his disciples to be careful who they follow? I think what's going on here is that he's referring to the Pharisees. He is telling his disciples not to follow the Pharisees, not to be like the Pharisees. Why do I say that? Well, first, turn to Matthew 15. I want you to see this in your own Bibles because we see Jesus use the same imagery of the blind leading the blind. Matthew chapter 15, verses 12 to 14. And in that context, it's very clear who he's talking about. He's talking about the Pharisees. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And Jesus answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, referring to the Pharisees. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. The second thing I want you to notice is that Jesus is warning his disciples in in point number one and point number three, against judging wrongly and acting hypocritically, well, those are two things that basically characterize the Pharisees. And I've already shown you how, from this gospel, the Pharisees judged wrongly. And the gospels are are just full of Jesus' rebukes of the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Matthew chapter 23, six times Jesus repeats the same phrase, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And so hopefully that connection now is becoming clear, right? Jesus is warning against, point number one, judging wrongly. And he's warning against, point number three, acting hypocritically. And if there's anybody back then who exemplified these two things, it's the Pharisees. And so when he says, point number two, don't follow blindly, I think he's specifically talking about his disciples not following the Pharisees and not blindly following after those blind guides, lest in following them in their spiritual blindness, you fall into the same pit that they're going to fall into, the pits of judgmentalism and hypocrisy. Everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And so you'll be every bit of the judgmental hypocrite that they are. Whereas Jesus says in Matthew 23, 15, about the Pharisees' followers, they'll become twice as much a child of hell as even the Pharisees are. And so point number two, don't follow blindly. Don't judge wrongly. Don't follow blindly. That brings us now to point number three, don't act hypocritically. 
Look again at verses 41 and 42. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Jesus, Jesus is like the king of illustrations. Right? And so he uses this illustration from really the realm of the ridiculous and humorous. He says, picture this guy. Right? He's, he's trying to take a speck out of someone else's eye. And speck, I don't think, is the best translation there because it makes me think about like a speck of dust. This isn't that. Right? This, is like a, this is like a chip. Uh, this is like a wood chip or like a piece of straw or, or something like that. And so it's kind of a big deal. Right? This is not like a little dust in your eye. There's like a wood chip in your eye. Right? That's, that's cause for concern. Remember, Jesus is a carpenter's son. Uh, this is probably something that he would have been aware of. And, and so you've got this guy, right? and he is trying to take the chip out of, his, uh, out of this other guy's eye. But one problem Right, like, like the major problem here is that the guy who is trying to take the chip out of the other guy's eye, hey, I brought a pair of tweezers. Here, come, come here, come here. Let me, let me see that chip right there. The problem is that he's got a log in his own eye. And log there would refer to like the weight-bearing beam of a building. Right? So just picture this massive piece of wood attached to his eye like, like he's Pinocchio, but it's not his nose. It's his eye. Like there's this giant thing sticking out of his eye. This is supposed to be a ridiculous and humorous caricature. But at the same time, right, as silly as that is, it's also a really serious and sobering picture of sin and self-righteousness and hypocrisy. Because the point that Jesus is making here is that as ridiculous as that scenario seems, well, it's just as ridiculous for you to be so overly concerned with other people's small sins when you've got major, unaddressed, overlooked sins of your own. But that's what pride and self-righteousness and hypocrisy does. It blinds us to our own faults while it magnifies the faults of others. And so it makes us very, very generous and forgiving and tolerant when it comes to our own sins, perhaps even blinded by the logs in our eyes. But as soon as we notice a speck in someone else's, we're ready to jump down their throats, right? We're, We're ready to show them that we see clearly. You need me to speak truth into your life. You need my wisdom to correct you. Meanwhile, you've got this massive log like knocking things over every time you turn your head. Brothers and sisters, I think this is something for which every single person in this room who calls himself a Christian, right, who calls himself a disciple, that's who Jesus is addressing here. Something that we ought to be very eager to examine in ourselves. Like if you're sitting here right now and you're thinking, well, this isn't me. Or, wow, I'm sure glad that she's here because she really needs to hear this. 
Well, that's probably all the more reason for you to examine yourself on this front. Now, I am not saying that every single one of us has this equally large, like, weight-bearing beam coming out of our eye. What I am saying is that we all have some kind of wood, right? Whether it's a chip or a log or whatever it is, it's just a matter of how big it is. But our primary concern shouldn't be to play optometrist. All right, come, come here. Let me, let me see your eye. Let me see your eye. Come here. All right, you try to read that top line with that chip in your eye. No, our primary concern should be to first look in the mirror, right? To examine ourselves, to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, to confirm our own calling and election. Many of you are familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba. But do you remember how that sin was exposed? The prophet Nathan goes to King David and tells him this fictitious story of a, of a rich guy who's unwilling to take one of his own lambs from his plentiful flock to serve his visitor. And so instead he steals from a poor guy who's only got one lamb, which was very precious to him. What happens when David hears that story? He is outraged. He is angry. What injustice. How dare that rich man use his power to take something that doesn't belong to him like that. Let me pronounce a sentence on him. But of course, that anecdote was referring to him. It was referring to what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. Right? You are that man. Now, that whole encounter, that, that, that confrontation it serves us as a perfect illustration of what Jesus is saying here. David was completely content to overlook his own sin, right? Months had passed since the sin that he committed, the egregious sin that he committed. But he's been perfectly content to overlook it and, and to hide it and to cover it up, to act like nothing happened. But as soon as he hears this story about the rich man, He's like lightning quick to right every single wrong that's happened. Well, that's why Nathan, instead of just directly confronting David, uh, that's why he takes this kind of circuitous route. Uh, David is so blinded by his own sin. He cannot see the log that is sticking out of his own eye, or perhaps he's just overlooking it. And so Nathan uses the speck of another uh, that David so clearly saw in order to show him his own log. And that, I think, is the connection to the previous point about the blind leading the blind. You can picture all these pharisaical types. You, you can picture David in this story of him and Bathsheba just blinded by the logs of sin that are sticking out of their own eyes refusing to address them, perhaps because you're too busy being the sin police for other people. So Jesus says, don't follow people like that. Don't be like them. Don't learn from them. They're blind. And they're going to lead you into a pit of destruction. The two important clarifications I think that we should make here. First, I want you to see that in giving this illustration... Look carefully. Notice that Jesus never says that it's wrong to want to take out the speck from your brother's eye. 
Or rather, what's wrong is to be hypocritical and to be only concerned with others when you've got a log in your own eye. But you look at that last sentence in verse 42. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. And so this is about the priority. The priority of dealing with your own sin, even though the sin of others may appear to be more urgent or important or visible or concerning. The priority of dealing with your own sin. And second important clarification, uh, we ought never to use this illustration as an excuse not to repent. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, Sometimes someone will confront us on something, and our initial reaction, like our defense, will be to point out their sin. Whoa! Look at the log in your own eye, you hypocrite! That's, That's not necessarily wrong. Like if the other person does have a log in their own eye, well then yes, you should lovingly and graciously, humbly bring it up. But if you're only bringing it up in response to them confronting you on a sin in your life, then you have to ask yourself two questions. Number one, why didn't I bring this up earlier? Like if I knew of this sin in their lives— Why didn't I lovingly bring it to their attention? Why am I only doing it in response to what they're saying about me? And number two, is it possible that I'm only bringing it up as a defense mechanism to shift attention away from my own sin? Basically, am I using their sin as an excuse not to deal with my own? Brothers and sisters, here's the thing. Sometimes, people will show you your sin in a loving and biblical way. And sometimes, people will show you your sin in a hypocritical way. And yes, they do need to be corrected and and exhorted with regards to that hypocrisy. But let's not lose sight of the fact that your sin is your sin regardless of how it's presented to you. Because ultimately, your sin isn't so much between you and that person who brought it to you. Your sin is first and foremost between you and your God. Like, if your sin is just interpersonal, like it's just me and you, well, then I guess you could dismiss your sin along with that person who brought it up, right, on that technicality that they themselves are being a hypocrite. They've got a beam in their own eye, so why do I even need to consider the fact that I have this speck in my eye? But our sin is first and foremost against a perfectly holy God. As David says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David properly acknowledges that his sin is first and foremost against a holy God. Well, if that's the case, if that's the case for all of our sin, well, then the primary avenue that we need to be concerned with is that between us and God. How have I sinned against God? How can I repent for my sin against God? How can I find forgiveness in his gospel? 
with those two clarifications in mind, right, let's, let's not lose sight of the main point here. Right? What is Jesus saying? Uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples. By extension, each and every one of us in this room who names his name. And he's addressing the tendency that's deep in our hearts to act hypocritically. And so again, that calls us, who claim to be his disciples, to self-examination, to a hard examination. So ask yourself, am I quick to notice faults in others, but blinded to my own sin? Do I see it as my job to correct other people while ignoring any pleas to acknowledge my own sin? Do I, going back to point number one, do I judge others with a stricter, harsher, less merciful standard than I'm willing to judge myself? Point number three, don't act hypocritically. Friends, this is this is a tough passage. Right? There are some Sundays when you can come and you can listen. Uh, there are other Sundays where you come and you listen and you can't help but being convicted because it's a tough passage. Friends, I think the, the greatest thing that happened this week in my life was studying this passage, uh, being ready to preach it to you because just, the Lord just so, showed me so many ways in which I fall short in this. Point number one, don't judge wrongly. Point number two, don't follow blindly. Point number three, don't act hypocritically. And so wherever it is that the Lord has produced this conviction in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus has now spoken these words to our hearts, but now by his grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to not just be hearers of this word, but doers as well. And for that, we need the grace of the Holy Spirit. For that, we need the power of his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this very convicting word from your son in this sermon. Lord, we pray for help. We know that we fall short in so many ways, that we sin before a holy God in so many ways. Father, help us to first look to Christ and find forgiveness for those sins in his wounds. But then let us also be doers of the word, Lord, that your word would shape our lives, that we would not just hear and listen and then move on, but that we would allow your word, even where it is very difficult, to shape and change our lives for your glory. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.